podcast where we listen to a Dharma teaching, contemplate through conversation and song, and engage in guided meditation. In this episode, we talk, sing, and meditate on three types of faith. That's faith, faith, faith. Do not accept my Dharma merely out of respect for me. Rather, examine and investigate it like a gold merchant tests raw ore by rubbing, cutting, and melting. These are the Buddha's instructions to his followers for how to greet, understand, and integrate his teachings into our lives. Does this mean that Buddhism is only a rational exercise? What part does faith play in encountering the Dharma? Traditionally, the Buddha described practitioners in two broad categories, those led by faith and those led by knowledge. When we look at these two closely, though, we find that the lines blur as the individual's journey progresses. First of all, let's fess up. Faith is something of a dirty word in modern intellectual society. It can be associated with a fundamentalist fervor devoid of objectivity and divorced from experience, scientific observation, and reason. There's something of apprehension that I noticed in myself early in my path and which I sometimes see in others. I feared that I would seem gullible or foolish, downright stupid, if associated with faith. Part of this has to do with conflating different connotations of the English word faith in Western culture. In our culture, faith is not just a mental state or attitude, but an individual's belief in a religion or even the religion itself. We speak of a Christian faith as an animating principle of the United States, for example. In Buddhist thought, faith is a mindset, an attitude, a mental state. Specifically, it's one of the virtuous or uplifting mental states. One's particular faith mindset is unique made up of a particular set of dispositions, inclinations, and the causes and conditions that brought the mental state into being. This differs from the connotation of faith as standalone, something that mysteriously happens or doesn't happen, independent of our input. The Buddha always teaches in cause and result. Our mental states are a result of the causes and conditions that we enact to give rise to those states. Faith is no different. Does that mean that there's no place for blind faith in Buddhism? Not at all. In fact, there is some measure, at least, of blind faith whenever we encounter a new venture or an experience that can go one way or another, whether religious or secular. For example, we have a kind of blind faith when we board a plane that it will not fall from the sky or even get behind the wheel of our car to drive, not to mention a taxi or an Uber that someone else is driving. We know there's a reasonable basis for this trust, though we may not know all the details. This quality of low-octane faith, more accurately trust, operates in spiritual contexts as well. There's a rich history of lay people in heritage countries of Buddhism in Asia, relying very strongly on blind faith as the medium for engaging Buddhism. This is not disparaged in the way it is in our cultural context. Indeed, there's a quality of innocence and purity to it. 
nor is it easily dismissed. This unquestioning faith can develop further with time and experience, engendering profound experience and measurable realization. In the West, most Buddhists have converted from atheists or agnostic or any variety of religions. Some measure of trust is in action when we try a new Dharma center or a meditation practice or even listen to a podcast about Buddhism for the first time or the third time or the tenth time or whatever it may be. There's a reasonable basis for this trust, however. Nevertheless, as we see in the instructions of a Buddha, an entirely stagnant faith does not correspond to integrating the Buddha Dharma in a vibrant, active way. The Buddha says, do not accept my dharma merely out of respect for me. Rather, examine and investigate it like a gold merchant tests raw ore by rubbing, cutting, and melting. To do so presupposes some measure of interest and knowledge. A gold merchant already has specialized experience in how raw gold differs from other ore. So when the gold merchant rubs, cuts, and melts it, there's some information that comes from that. The gold merchant's also ready to make an investment if they find that the ore is actually gold. This initial mindset is one that develops out of our lives, out of our experience, a sense of urgency for the truth that makes sense of and brings meaning to our lives. This urgency is one that's born of experience, but does not die in the mere intellectual. It's ready to invest in the process once we strike gold. It's not a mere exercise. Of course, the rubbing, cutting, and melting of this quote exemplify the process of listening, contemplating, and meditating we featured from the very first episode of this podcast. This is a process of encouraging, developing, and cultivating precise knowledge at increasingly subtle and experiential levels. It moves from individual to word to meaning to deep meaning and intellectual understanding to non-dual wisdom. As you know, I can wax rhapsodic about this process very easily. I call it integrative practice, and it's very much a process of knowledge, one that guides those whose way is one of knowledge. For today's purposes, though, I'd like to look at this three-step process symbolized by a gold merchant testing raw ore through another lens, that of faith. Here, too, we find that there are three degrees of faith. All three relate to trust, as blind faith does, but here the trust is a foundation enriched by understanding and experience. Having some measure of this fundamental trust, which we may experience as perhaps a suspension of disbelief or benefit of a doubt, allows us to greet the Dharma on its own terms, equally likely to critique our own misconceptions as what we find in the teachings. The more we encounter and put the Dharma into practice at this level, however, the more we develop the first degree of faith called confidence or conviction. Now we're speaking of more a trial and error approach rather than suspending disbelief and making our way without any evidence. We treat the Dharma as a working hypothesis. From that, we gain lived experience of its efficacy. Faith as confidence arises right out of our lived experience of what happens when we apply the teachings to our lives, examining how causes and conditions we put into action yield corresponding results. 
This in turn helps us understand all our experience as results, applying the Dharma to welcoming whatever comes with a view towards enacting practice. We see too that the results in our mental state come about as we cultivate skillful qualities actively and let go of unskillful ones on and off the cushion. This confidence is itself a spectrum. It's a bit wobbly at first, like a fawn taking its first steps. It can grow into a stronger confidence described as conviction. This is still this first kind of faith, but we're already starting to see that it is indeed a continuum, a spectrum. Already it's more stable than this suspension of disbelief. There's more meat to it, more heft. It fuels even more engagement with the teaching when we have this confidence that is born of our experience. And that yields a clarity of purpose and intentionality called vivid faith or sometimes clear faith. At this level, the principles of Dharma come alive in us. We are living an ethical life, fostering tranquility, insight, and understanding. And these are meaningful in and of themselves. Their value shines with vivid intensity, empowers our spiritual practice right within our experience of the results that come about from nourishing them in our mind stream. What's more, this active intentionality and engagement brings clarity and vivacity to how we engage the Dharma. Our understanding comes more easily. Our reach expands. Meditation feels more pleasant. Life is less overwhelming. The Dharma literally lights our way, so we see more clearly, take succor in its power, gain in self-care, tenderness towards others, ability, and trust in the three jewels, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Here's where our path softens and contextualizes. It's more about insight than rules. Faith is experienced as a blessing, a grace, a kind of salve that reduces friction amidst the ups and downs of life, easing our movements and encouraging still more exploration right within experience. The vivid character of this faith experience connects us to the very qualities within us that we seek to manifest by relying on external supports. From there, we become inspired to embody the highest qualities of mind those exemplified by the three jewels, aware that our own innate qualities are the very same. This is faith as longing, as aspiration, as inspiration. The example, the role model of the three jewels fuels us and also inspires us to manifest that very same excellence that is also our own true nature, directly for our own sake and for the sake of lighting the way for all beings. Faith in this light is understood to be a continuum, a mental state that is subject to our intention, our own care and attention, our choices, our actions. The more we polish these seeds of urgency, of seeking truth through the teachings and practice of Dharma, the more faith ripens along this spectrum. The three degrees are signposts along the way, indicators of turning points when the critical mass of our trust, our faith, metamorphosizes from one inflection into something qualitatively different, yet of the same stuff. More importantly, like the parallel process of listening, contemplating, and meditating, the degrees of faith are described in terms that embody curiosity, depth, and integration. These two ways of going then, traveling by faith and by knowledge, 
are ultimately discovered to be interwoven. This is a vital clarification. The resonances between and among the ways of faith and of knowledge keep reason from descending to dry, dusty, and disembodied concepts separate from experience. Likewise, this harmony imbues faith with rigor, relationality, and resilience. The result is a grounded, yet uplifting integration of Buddha Dharma that is agile and enriching. One way leads with reason, the other with heart, yet both ripen to a vibrant unity, revealing the central traits of the Buddhist path. It is maturational, it is relational, it is experiential, and it is realizational. Understood in its living context, the Buddhist sense of faith then is one of encounter, nourishment, and empowerment, present from the very beginning and blossoming continuously throughout our spiritual path at our own pace, in our own way. It brings a vital sense of wonder, curiosity, exploration, joy, and abundance to our lives here and now, as well as fueling our spiritual path as a whole with its richness, all the way to transcendence. is delightful because one, it's always wonderful to hear you talk about any topic and faith is such a rich one, but also because I already wrote the song. And so this is a first for us. We haven't gotten to do this to talk about a song that's already been written. So I wrote this song back in 2007. And we were together in Nepal, and there was a teaching about faith that Drupan Kempo had done. And so I wrote the song, and somewhere out there, there's a ridiculous video of us singing it with very shaky camera because our friend was laughing so hard. But everyone's going to get to hear Heather's beautiful rendition of it, which I think is great. I'm going to interweave this a little bit with sort of my thoughts about my own path of faith to integrate that with your teaching and with the song. I love you talking about this interweaving of knowledge and faith and experience. That I feel like does really resonate for me in terms of my own experience. I know that when I started, I was just trying meditation. I needed something. I came to you. I was like, what's this thing you're doing? Tell me about it. And I started out. I like your description of that early part of faith as trust. I just want to make sure I know, is that the same as blind faith? Is that what you're saying, that the sort of trust is like blind faith, or are those two different sorts of things? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It really is a spectrum. So all of faith is trust, whether we're talking about a blind faith, all the way up to that sense of longings faith or inspired faith. There's a measure of entrustment that is present all the way along. You could think of it as how much of that is palpable. When we first step into, for example, a Tibetan Buddhist center with its colors and vivid imagery of multiple heads and arms on deities and all kinds of fairly alien experiences for us, 
that palpable sense of trust <laughs> is right there. That trust is very palpable. And then later on, especially when you get to the later frequencies of faith, that's another way of thinking about it. The trust is so ingrained. It's so natural that it's hard to even think of it that way. Early on, when we have a quality of blind faith that works and blind here in the Buddhist frame just means there isn't a lot of reasoning yet fleshing it out. Maybe it's just the reasoning of, okay, even though this center looks pretty weird, probably nobody's going to kill me. (laughs) 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 That's a fairly reasonable basis (laughs) of trust. (laughs) And that's all you really need to get past the threshold and get in there and, and test it out. That trust is there in the blind faith, but it's there all along because mm-hmm. actually the Sanskrit Shraddha and the Tibetan Depa have more of a sense of trust and entrustment than the English word faith does. Faith, as we mentioned in the talk, can have this sense of just this sort of thing that descends on you or you have it or you don't have it. And this is something of the connotation in our modern culture. The word itself derives from the Latin fides, fidelity, which is a sense of trust. I love your description of enough trust to get on an airplane or get into a taxi. I feel like you were sort of my pilot or my driver. You know, I had enough trust in you that I didn't know what this thing was, but I'm going to try it. And I remember even the first time I wanted to go to a Dharma center, I didn't feel comfortable going over that threshold. I was like, you got to come with me. And, (laughs) And you did. So not everybody's lucky enough to have you like physically with them. But I was thinking about how maybe this podcast is something like that. People have you here to help guide them through it. And and so having that trust in somebody to help with those first few steps was just essential for me to kind of get literally across the threshold into my practice. And, you know, what happened for me then was that the practice worked. I found that it was helpful to me. That experience then led me to more trust I got curious and I started learning more. I didn't necessarily believe it all. Like I didn't buy it all, but I didn't not buy it. I just didn't really know. But I was sort of skeptical. I mean, I'm an academic. I come from a secular intellectual family. Faith was not something I grew up with. Where I got to with, with it was just realizing that my life was better if I lived as if it were all true. And that's kind of how I got over that. You know, you talked about this apprehension of seeming gullible. And and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about what helped you to get past that. You really hit on so many important things there. And one thing I'd like to talk about before getting to my individual experience is that it's recognized that having an individual to help you across the threshold, literally and figuratively, is quite helpful. There's a teaching called the Four Reliances, which I referred to obliquely in the talk just now, where we do first rely on an individual, whether it's a friend who takes us to the Dharma Center, a teacher we heard of on a podcast, and so we're willing to try and go and hear them in person or whatever it might be. Maybe we resonate with a teacher we saw in a very public setting, and then we're willing to try uh, something that has more of a religious flavor to it, whatever it may be. There is something about connecting with the individual. Ultimately, the individual that we connect with in Buddhism is the Buddha himself. 
we start to think, huh, I don't find a whole lot blameworthy in this person. I'm willing to at least give an ear to what he has to say. Don't rely only on the individual, rely on the words that they're explaining. And then it goes further. Don't just rely on the words, but rely on the meaning. Don't just rely on the meaning as stated, literally, but on the profound meaning, the definitive meaning. Don't just rely on your intellectual consciousness that can analyze and infer from experience, but rely ultimately on non-dual wisdom. This is really describing the entire path from encountering somebody that you have enough trust that you're willing to give it a try all the way through to finding the true guru right within the nature of our mind, our own non-dual wisdom. For me, as you said, it was definitely a process of coming to that comfort. My background's all in science and law, not the most touchy-feely kinds of fields that jump to mind when you think about these things. Skeptical doesn't even begin to describe my mind state. (laughs) There's always something that gets you in the door of whatever it is that has a connection for you. From a Buddhist standpoint, there's already a connection that's kind of driving us to seek and that we immediately recognize. I went to many different meditation centers in different traditions for years without it clicking and went to a Tibetan Buddhist teaching at the public library in a very sterile room for the first time and immediately clicked. There's just something there that does it. Here again, you start seeing this sense of looking at these two ways of being, leading by faith or leading by reason as sort of, again, what gets you over the threshold, what gets you in the door. And then those paths start to merge because as I see it, each one develops the other side. They're mirror images that are also intertwined. So it's impossible not to cultivate the one that is already calling you without strengthening the one that feels less present. I love the thought about those experiences that help to cultivate our faith. Some of those experiences were, you know, meditation experiences, calming the mind, finding that it was helping me to gain some equilibrium in my emotional state. I also had some experiences that were, you know, kind of woo-woo, that were sort of energetic experiences that were beyond anything that I could make sense of based on science and, and my understanding of the world. And some of those have been within Buddhist experiences. And also very early on in practicing meditation, I also had an opportunity to encounter my sister's guru, who's in a different spiritual tradition and had a very profound experience there. And and it just opened me up to believing that there is something going on beyond my current understanding. And so I don't know if you can talk about that kind of experience within the context of faith. You have an experience that you can't explain, and then you say, well, that might actually open me up to a dimension of trust and faith that I didn't have before. Rather, that sort of idea or concept of faith is something that you force yourself to have before ever experiencing any reason to, whether that actually happens in spiritual traditions, I couldn't say, but there's certainly that idea, usually among people who aren't very religious, (laughs) that people uh, of faith have that kind of forced 
mindset. That's not how I experience it at all. And as you say, people of all traditions that I know of, it's I, I don't know of anybody who forces that faith to happen. But more often than not, what happens is the experience is one that's unnameable or inexplicable beyond the magisteria of science, which is the sensory stuff. You can't see it, you can't smell it, you can't taste it, you can't touch it, you know, you can't hear it. There isn't an observable experimental way to explain what happens, and yet you can't deny your experience. So that juxtaposition leads you to think there's something more here than simple sensory explanations will provide. And then that gives you a little bit of leeway to open up into that trust and say, well, I'm going to look some more. And that Mm -hmm. just keeps going. To really see it as a spectrum, I think is really valuable because what happens on a continuum is you can't really find where one moment ends and the next one begins. It's a very fluid process. And then, for example, in the teachings of the three degrees of faith or kinds of faith, there are points along the way that are identified as signposts. But even there, it's very hard to see where it turns from one into another. This experience that you're talking about of having mysterious things happen that you can't explain is definitely one of those things that brings some momentum to the movement along that continuum. But again, it's very much individual and a part of our own path, our own experience, our own making our way. Sure. And we probably have to be ready for those experiences or ready to see them in a certain way in order for it to be connected to that development of faith. Yes. And that's that maturational quality. Faith ripens, Mm -hmm. which is, again, very different than the attitude that I had when I was purely skeptical of faith is just something you force on yourself or that you have or you don't have. In a Buddhist context, like everything else is about causes and conditions yielding results. And like anything else, we it's a developmental process. You start out with that trust and it grows out of your experience. And then you find the value that comes from that and you encourage it. You use the experiences that teach you to open up to open up and then you open up some more and it ripens over time. That's how that continuum is able to continually move into new territory. You talked about confidence. Is that the same thing as conviction? Yes. And as I mentioned in the talk, uh, it really does start out with a measure of confidence. And then confidence itself ripens, even within the part of the spectrum of faith that can be called confidence. At first, the confidence is kind of shaky. When you get closer to the end of the spectrum that's starting to move into vivid faith, then that confidence is very strong. You could call that conviction at that point. So again, really thinking of it as a spectrum as opposed to three distinct separate categories that you just jump from one to another is very helpful to my mind. It really reflects what happens in experience a lot more carefully. At the end of that portion of the spectrum, you would call that confidence so powerful that it's conviction. You wouldn't say it's conviction necessarily at the very tenuous beginnings of that piece of the spectrum. The second part of that spectrum then is the vivid or clear faith. Is that right? That's right. In the song, I also end with this longing faith. 
And I'm trying to figure out like, what's the third part of that spectrum? And because uh, you, when you talked about it, it was so spectrum-y that I wasn't sure exactly sort of <laughs> what, <laughs> where the second and third pieces were and what characterizes them. Well, it's interesting because different explanations might actually interchange the order of the second and third of those. So mm-hmm. part of why it feels difficult to distinguish is because they really are difficult to distinguish so much so that sometimes the order is described as confidence or conviction, then clear or vivid faith, and then longing faith, as I just did, or sometimes the longing faith comes before the vivid faith. Uh, the difference is, um, if we're going to look at those signposts, is that first comes enough confidence. So that's very different than just suspending disbelief, which is what gets you started. Or sometimes I say, just give people the, give the teachings and the Buddha the benefit of a doubt. That's sort of as if, or what if it were true? You're just giving the teachings the benefit of the doubt for the sake of giving it a try. And you have enough of that trust which is to some extent blind, but there's some reasonable basis there. It's not entirely blind, but it's mostly suspending disbelief like you do in a movie. It's hard to enjoy a movie if you don't suspend disbelief that this is actually happening instead of you sitting in a room watching it. But then confidence comes out of our experience. As that confidence grows and becomes conviction, then it becomes a lot more stable. That suspension of disbelief is largely left behind. There may be some areas, however, this is why it's so spectrumy. You may have a lot of conviction about some areas of the Buddhist teaching, not so much about the others. You'd be okay with the things that you can experience in your life or anything that you can experiment with and have observable results. But other things that are a little bit more attenuated, not so much. So there's already a spectrum there. But at some point, that confidence becomes stable enough that there is a lot more clarity that comes to your practice and to your purpose. They are valuable in and of themselves, all of these results you're experiencing. What happens when you lead a life that's ethical? When we actually start experiencing the results of meditation, be it tranquility or insight, when we have these understandings in our experience, then those aspects of our life and our practice become meaningful in and of themselves, as opposed to in the first part where they're meaningful because I feel better because of what they do for me. Here, they're just wonderful to experience. When we really develop even a fairly initial level of proficiency in shamatha or tranquility meditation, it feels lovely in and of itself, in addition to what it does for us outside of the meditation context. So then it becomes something that's self-propelling. It's very vivid. It's self-perpetuating. It becomes the light that shows the way. That's why words like clear and vivid are used for this piece. That really starts to strengthen the trust or faith we have in the three jewels. Why? Because that's how we got to this rich way of being. Now it's not just experiencing results and liking those results. Now it's this way of being so bright. It's so powerful. Even when things are difficult, it's supportive. So we start to develop that trust in the three jewels, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, in a very vivid way that brings light to our life. And then what happens the more we engage at that level, things become 
really much more built into the fabric of our lives, less about following rules of what's good to do, what's bad to do, I have to do this, or I have to do that, and more about it flowing more immediately. That isn't always the joyride that it sounds like. (laughs) Sometimes it's the trial and error of living out of that lifestyle without the very clear rules about do this, don't do that. This person was very aggressive at me. How do I behave? There isn't a rule, but there is this vivacity and clarity of dharma as a lifestyle. And that gives us confidence in the three jewels. The more we do that, we realize that the reason it's valuable to take refuge in the three jewels is because they are an outer expression of our inner way of being. Then that's inspiring. That's the aspiration, the longing to actually manifest that inner way of being 100% without there being anything obscured, without there being any interruption. That is incredibly inspiring when we can feel that resonance right within our own nature of mind. I guess I just want to end by saying, if you're listening to this, don't take our word for it. Give it a try. That's really the best way to know how this will fit for you. I'll just end with the simplest statement of the Buddha on how this works. Come and see. This has been Yeshe and Tanya. Next, you'll hear Heather with the song and then Zopa offering a guided meditation with Shivni on Tibetan singing bowls. Thank you for listening. If you have questions, our email address is sparks at prajnafire.com. Visit us on the web at prajnafire.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Prajna Sparks. May all beings benefit. Well, I guess it would be nice if I believed in karma, then I could read the dharma and I'd have a clue. Then I'd have to think twice before I stole your wife away. Have to watch everything I say and what I think too. Oh, but I need some time to create devotion to quell my mind disturbed by love and hate. So I have to try faith, oh, I have to try faith, even if it's my faith, I sure need faith, the faith, the faith, Buddha said don't just believe what I say, you've got to try it for a day, then you know if I'm right. Feeling some faith, ooh, conviction of faith. I'm developing faith. I'm getting some faith, the faith, the faith. My mind is calm now.
insight and experience. I feel the guru's blessing, the sweetest nectar. But I'm feeling no confusion now. It's more than making sense. I'm feeling clear faith, joyous clear faith, diligence and faith, even longing faith. The faith. Hello, and welcome to the meditation for this episode of Prajna Sparks. Let's begin just with a little practice of shamatha, of calm abiding, the tranquility meditation that helps us to settle our minds, to find our balance, to find that sweet spot where we're both restful yet alert, calm and vividly present. We'll do this just by focusing on our breath, following its movement in and out. If we find ourselves thinking about it or thinking about anything else, just notice that you are thinking and return your attention to the experience of the breath flowing in and out of the body, settling in, helping us to become present with whatever is going on for us and alert. So we'll practice like this, following the breath for about a minute. Remaining in this settled, vivid space of mind, we can turn our attention to that interior sense many of us have, where we're looking for something trustworthy to light our way. Open yourself up to however that may be manifesting for you in this current moment. Allow yourself to feel into the longing or whatever it feels like for you here and now. And let's explore our experience of trust a little bit more. Well, there are many things that we place our trust in. 
let's take something of meaning to work with. Perhaps the Buddha Dharma or meditation practice in general. Having a sense of confidence comes usually because we've tried it for ourselves, at least tried it out a little bit. And it's likely that we have some experience that there is something beneficial here. Whatever that may be for you in this moment, bring your own experience of it vividly to mind. Your sense of Buddha Dharma as a whole, or a specific teaching, or just your practice of meditation, and feel into that sense of knowing it's beneficial through your own experience. However, that's true for you. And once you have that experience in mind, present right now, where you're really tapping into it, take that as the meditation object and let your attention rest easily and gently on that. Now turn your mind towards something in the Dharma or in the practice of meditation that you are not only confident in, but that you're so sure of that you've made it part of your life, part of how you go about your days. Maybe it is the emphasis in Buddhism on caring and benevolence, and you can tap into your own resonance with practicing and living these qualities, such a vivid a live thing that you strive for day after day. Or maybe it is just the recognition that you believe enough in meditation that you've made it part of your daily practice, that you choose to set aside time for it. Whatever you focus on, it will likely bring you a sense of uplift and enthusiasm. This is vivid faith. As soon as that experience arises within you, stop thinking about the aspect of Dharma or meditation or whatever. Allow mind to rest one pointedly on the experience. And if there is nothing in Dharma or meditation that feels like this for you right now, simply sit with easy, open awareness 
of just whatever experience is going on for you without trying to change it or defend it. Just be with it. Having spent some time integrating whatever experience of vivid faith we might have been focusing on, we may now experience the immediacy of it in us, alive for us in the present. Perhaps it is like a warm heartbeat drawing us forward further into exploring and experiencing it both inwardly and outwardly. When we allow this experience, we easily recognize those who are living this quality, and we resonate with that possibility, that kernel within us. There is a recognition and a yearning, feeling that with the right mentors, the right guidance, we too can live with brilliance. Take a minute now to rest one-pointedly in this experience if it is coming up for you, or in whatever experience you find happening right now. Don't alter. Don't run away. Don't judge. See clearly. Rest naturally relaxed. Thank you for your practice.